Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well today I'm speaking with Peter Singer, Francesca Minerva, and Jeff McMahon. Peter is a professor of bioethics at Princeton, and he's been on the podcast before. He focuses on practical ethics and is extraordinarily well-known for his book, Animal Liberation, which is pretty close to the foundation of the animal rights movement. He's also written a lot about global poverty and uh, has been deeply inspirational to effective altruists everywhere. Francesca Minerva is a research fellow at the University of Milan, and her research focuses on applied ethics, medical and bioethics, discrimination, and academic freedom, among other topics. And Jeff McMahon is a professor of moral philosophy at Oxford University, and he focuses on a range of issues related to harm and benefit, including war, self-defense and defense of others, abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, personal identity, the moral status of animals, the ethics of causing future people to exist, i.e. having children, disability, philanthropy, and other topics. And the proximate cause of this episode is that the three of them are launching a new journal, the Journal of Controversial Ideas. And this is the focus of our conversation. We discuss the ethics of exploring dangerous ideas, and then we jump into some specific ones. We talk about the possibility of having a market in vaccines, the taboo around the topic of race and IQ, the relationship between activism and academia. We revisit Peter's famous shallow pond argument for doing good. Anyway, a fascinating area, all too timely, and uh, quite relevant to growing concerns around cancel culture and free speech, political hyperpartisanship, and the general dysfunction in our institutions now. And now, without further delay, I bring you Peter Singer, Francesca Minerva, and Jeff McMahon. I am here with Peter Singer, Francesca Minerva, and Jeff McMahon. Great to meet all of you. We're spanning the globe here. So, Peter, you are in Australia. That's right. Once you each introduce yourselves briefly, I, I will do something proper in the intro here. But what are you each focused on? I guess, let's start with you, Peter. You've been on the podcast before. People will be familiar. But let's just bring you in as um, a, now a podcast repeat. What, what are you up to these days? I'm continuing to be professor of bioethics at Princeton University. I'm working on a range of questions in ethics, issues relating to global poverty, issues relating to animals. I'm actually currently doing a revised edition of my book, Animal Liberation, which mm. came out first in 1975 and needs some updating. So I'm hoping to get that done sometime this year. So it'll be out next year. And I've been working on issues relating to the pandemic and ethical questions about doing human challenge trials, about mm. vaccine distribution. There's a lot of things keeping me busy. Oh, great. Francesca? I am a researcher at the University of Milan. I mostly work on discrimination based on physical appearance, uh, but I also work on longevity, immortality, and uh, other bioethical issues like enhancement, and conscientious objection in medicine. And Jeff? 
I'm the Whites Professor of Moral Philosophy at uh, Oxford University. I've done a lot of work on issues in practical ethics, issues like abortion, infanticide, war. But recently I've been working on a book on what's called population ethics, issues having to do with causing people to exist, uh, which is a notoriously difficult area of ethics. And I'm trying to show that a lot of the problems and paradoxes in population ethics are essential to understanding a broad range of other issues in practical ethics. Mm. Well, almost by definition, we could talk about the most interesting and consequential things that face us as a a species. Uh, There's so much to talk about, but this conversation is occasioned by you guys starting a new journal, the Journal of Controversial Ideas. Uh, and I, if I'm not mistaken, this is a response to the perceived crisis in academia around you know, political correctness, wokeness, cancel culture, uh, spreading allergy, really an autoimmune disorder, intellectually speaking, to ideas that make people uncomfortable. I don't know which of you wants to kick us off here, but what what is this project and just how concerned are you about the state of our intellectual discourse? Can I, can I just say one thing first? I think sure. it'd be probably appropriate for Peter to lead off with the main comment, but I just wanted to say that uh, our concern is every bit as much with efforts to suppress free speech coming from the political right mm-hmm. as it is with efforts coming from the from the left. Sure. Yeah. Sure, I can say something, although I, I do want to say that it was really Francesca who's had this idea and brought it to me many years ago of uh, responding, trying to produce a journal where people who wanted to publish anonymously or under a pseudonym would be able to do so, but it would still be a basically an, an, an academic journal, a peer-reviewed journal that would be rigorously reviewed so that getting into it would not be easy. There would be high standards of publication, but people could protect themselves against getting a, a lot of harassment or threats or harming their academic career by publishing controversial ideas. And I know that Francesca herself was, was influenced by an experience that she and her co-author had when they published an article about infanticide and Francesca can tell you about that. I, earlier on, had also somewhat similar experiences when I was silenced in Germany when I was speaking about euthanasia for severely disabled newborn infants. And that, incidentally, those opposition came both from the conservative Christian right and, to some extent, from the disability movement with which some on the, on the left were aligned. But there were, of course, a lot of other incidents, academics who were thre- threatened or harassed or had articles retracted because they were controversial, even though they'd been accepted by peer review. And that was really the driving force between trying to set up a place where people could publish and where they would know that articles would not be retracted just because of some political backlash. And where, as I said, if they wish to publish anonymously, and not all of our articles will be uh, anonymous or under a pseudonym. In fact, the majority of them that we've received so far are not. But uh, if authors wish to do that, 
they will be able to do so. Francesca, why don't you say a little bit more about your inspiration for the journal? Yes, I published this article in the Journal of Medical Ethics in 2012. It was a co-authored article and uh, it was about moral status of newborns comparing it with the moral status of fetuses, which is a topic that has been explored several over several years in philosophy. Peter has written about it, Jeff has written about it. But when we published that article, things got a bit out of hand because at that point in 2012, social media uh, were available, the internet was a big thing, and some right-wing online magazines and newspapers picked up the news about this article and started spreading information about it, uh, misinformation about it, actually, uh, because the titles and the articles summarizing it summarizing the content of this academic paper were not very accurate. So very quickly, we got a lot of death threats and online abuse. And at the beginning, that was quite scary. Also, we were at the beginning of our career. So we were quite surprised by this reaction. Mm. But soon after, I realized that the main threat wasn't really like the kind of physical threats that they were mentioned in the emails I was receiving, mostly from Christians and right-wing people. But I started being worried about my career prospects mm. and um, because I was told that I could not be hired because I was too controversial. And um, in the following years, I kept looking at what was happening in academia and they realized that these kind of episodes were becoming more and more common. So there were Rebecca Tuvel and the Weinstein, the Christiakis, the Bruce Gilly. A lot of people were getting a lot of negative reaction, in some cases from the general public, like in my case, but increasingly from inside academia itself. So I realized that we started getting, having a problem of self-censorship, either because people were worried about being the subject of these death threats, but also because people were worried about their career in, because we started having a lot of petitions and letters to get people fired or having their papers retracted. So I talked about this concern with Peter and Jeff and, and we decided to start this journal. And after quite a few years working on this project, we are almost ready to publish our first issue, which should come out around the 15th of April. Well, it seems to me there's a kind of demarcation problem here where at least two concerns should kind of bound our discourse about the nature of the world and, and how we should all be living within it. Uh, and one is just the finiteness of time and attention, right? We all have a certain amount of, of hours to spend on this earth, and we can choose to spend them, you know, one way or the other. And then the question is, well, why spend any significant amount of time focused on questions where either the question or the possible answers produce a, um, 
a significant concern about harm, right? So there's some possibility of dangerous knowledge. The terrain is so ethically charged, it produces a an experience of revulsion in the better part of humanity that may even just hear about the topic. And so there's there's just this question of, okay, well, just why do it on certain topics? And then there's just, apart from just the opportunity costs and the wastage of time, there's this concern about some kind of ethical and intellectual negligence because there are foreseeable harms that crop up down many of these paths, right? So if you're going to just take the I don't know what your actual thesis was uh, you know, in discussing the moral status of infants versus fetuses, but for someone to spend a lot of time on the question of why the impediments to infanticide are as high as they are could seem to many people to be just a an all too casual prying at the lid of Pandora's box, right? I mean, perhaps this this isn't the best example of that because I you know I'm sure there's an argument for the the unconscionable suffering of uh, that that is allowed to persist for certain babies that are bound to die soon. Um, and so this, there's an argument for euthanasia there, which most or many people will be sensitive to. But I guess that I'm just asking a generic question about this boundary that the three of you are contemplating and just how, how you will make choices about what to, what's legitimate for inclusion and what isn't here. It seems to me that the best way to avoid wrongful harm is to be able to identify which kinds of harm are genuinely wrongful. All of this requires thought and reflection and discussion. It's not as if we know the answers to these difficult moral issues a priori. We simply have to think these things through if we, unless we want to just be guided by ignorance and superstition. If we can't talk about things and discuss them, investigate the different views that people have, subject them to reasoned scrutiny, we're just going to be casting about blindly, and we're much more likely to do harm that way than we are if we think things through rationally, looking at the evidence, and entertaining, listening to, and thinking about all the different positions that uh, people might have on the issues. Ignoring these, ignoring these questions is the worst thing we can do, it seems to me. There are some limits. I mean, that is to say, if we can, if we know or have good reason to believe that some open discussion of some issue really is going to do harm to innocent people, then that's, of course, a very, very good reason not to discuss it. But I think that's a quite rare phenomenon mm. and that we're much more likely to do harm through ignorance than we are through careful, reasoned discussion of issues. Yeah, uh, Peter, Francesca, do you have anything on that? I certainly ag agree that I, I think the general view is that being able to discuss things openly is likely to lead us to a, a better informed, and more thoughtful, reflective understanding of the issue, and that that's likely to produce better results in the long run. You know, you, you talk about harms, and of course, you know, sometimes you can see immediate possible harms. Uh, a lot of the cancel culture has been about you know, not offending people, not threatening their sense of themselves or their identity or something like that. That is an obvious harm right there. But there may be other harms through not discussing issues, through 
not allowing people to have their say and to point out some of the drawbacks of current practices, perhaps, which you know will 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 go on and will continue. And I think we should have confidence that open discussion and trying to get to the truth of the situation and to the best and most thoughtful and justified views of the situation is in the long run likely to produce a better outcome, a better well-being for all of those affected and reduced harm. So, mm. I, you know, I, I think that's the basis on which we, we generally answer those questions. Uh, and I agree with Jeff, you know, you can imagine situations where you would not do this. Some years ago, a, a magazine called The Progressive published an account of how to make a, a, an H-bomb. And, you know, I, I think there I would say, well, it's not clear to me that this is something that everybody needs to know. And, and <laughs> scientists, scientists nowadays have, have similar questions with how to engineer viruses that would produce a pandemic, you know, deliberately. I, 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 maybe those are, th- those are things we would not publish. That's not what we're looking for. We're, we're looking for discussions and ideas where we think it's reasonable to want more people to be involved in this and to try to be better informed and more thoughtful. Mm. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to find both sides of that line in, in my imagination here. I guess I have a couple of examples off the top of my head that uh, where one falls kind of well inside of it and, and one falls perhaps just outside. Um, I guess perhaps you could react to this. I mean, so the one example from our current circumstance now where we're having this conversation at one hopes is the tail end of the COVID pandemic. And it seems to me that there's probably been discussion about this, but if there has, I haven't heard it. But it's at least an interesting ethical question as to whether there should be a market in vaccine privileges, right? So if people who have earlier spots in line who may actually not want to get a vaccine because they're, they're worried about you know, vaccine technology, could they sell their spots to people who would want to buy them, right? I'm sure there are many wealthy people who would like to spend a lot of money to get a vaccine months earlier than they otherwise are going to. Going to. And I'm sure that if you floated that idea on social media, or certainly if you endorsed that idea on social media, you could expect the swift cancellation of your academic and uh, perhaps professional prospects. And there's an obvious harm that comes from our inability to even discuss an idea like that, whether whatever side we come down on, because that market could produce a lot of good, obviously. If billionaires early on could have been given the opportunity to spend millions for the privilege of getting the vaccine early, well, then those millions could have been used to, to cancel the very inequalities that People are, are would be worried about in in their their ick reaction to a market in vaccines emerging in the first place, and so that seems to be something that we should talk about. But can, can I say something yeah. about that? Go just ahead. very briefly. Sure. Uh, we've been having debates for quite a long time about very similar issues. For example, the sale of organs for yeah. transplantation. And also just generally about how medical resources should be distributed in a society. I mean, it's strange that if you went on to the Internet and advocated the sort of proposal that you have mentioned, you would get attacked for that. 
when people in the United States tolerate rich people being able to get the very best medical treatment anywhere in the world and poor Americans being left out almost entirely. Mm. So, I mean, there's a parallel debate about just how ordinary medical care should be distributed. It doesn't seem to be fundamentally different from what you're discussing about the sale of vaccines. Yeah, uh, that's a great point. Nevertheless, Sam, if you wish to write it up and submit it as a paper <laughs> to the Journal of Controversial Ideas, we'd be very happy to have it considered. And if you want to do it uh, under a pseudonym so that uh, you know, nobody knows it's your idea, although you have now let it out on this uh, podcast. I, I, I don't think my do pseudonym is going to work at this point. Yeah. Right. So, and then the other topic, which is one I'm you know, all too familiar with from this podcast, has been the taboo around discussing the data in, in um, IQ differences between populations, right? I mean, this is just absolutely radioactive. And I stumbled onto this topic, not because I have any interest in IQ per se, much less in, in racial or ethnic or population differences in it, but because I became very concerned after you know witnessing the defenestration of Charles Murray, you know, mm -hmm. the upteenth defenestration of Charles Murray, you know, 25 years after he wrote his, his infamous book, I became very worried that our society seems to imagine that something absolutely existential politically and ethically rides on our not finding out that there are group differences. Right, I mean, it seems to me just as as a, as a theoretical assumption, extraordinarily likely that anything you would test between various populations of human beings, no matter how much you want these mean values to be the same, you will find mean differences. And this is not not just IQ. This is literally anything you could want to test that that you could measure. You are going to find that the Norwegians and the Italians and the Inuit and the Australian Aborigines and you know, or, or people who just identify with those groups and there may be be imperfectly actually related to those groups, you're going to find differences. And it seems to me that most of our society seems to believe that our future happiness and cooperation as a species depends on that not being true because we would not be able to absorb those facts politically because they are so toxic. Now, this strikes me as absolutely absurd, and there's nothing really riding on there being no group differences. But I do question, and this is this is the one question I had for Murray on my you know one question I had for Murray on my podcast with him: why one would spend any significant time trying to establish those differences or you know, looking for those differences? You know, I, I think we need to be able to talk about this because. We will be ambushed by evidence of those differences because we, if we just decide to study things like intelligence generically, these distinctions between populations may just leap out of the data, and I have, and we have good reason, I think, not to care about them. But I do question whether it's worth publishing somebody's heroic effort to establish the reality of these differences because of the the social cost. That can follow from that. You know, I don't know if you think that's a distinction without a difference, but I'm wondering how, how you feel about that example. Well, I actually think that you're right about this in that whether there are these differences or not may not matter in the slightest 
That is to say, what what people ought to be discussing, it seems to me, is if there are such differences, why, why that should matter. Should it make any difference to the way we think about any particular individual or about the way that we treat any particular group? It might, if a group turns out on average you know, to, to score lower on some measure, that that's a reason to provide disproportionate resources for that group in order for it to be able to achieve equality in, in, in practice. We should, what we should be questioning is whether any of these differences, whether at the individual level or at the group level, make any difference whatsoever to moral status. And if they don't, then it's unclear to me why anyone should be concerned if these differences do emerge at the population level. I, I'd slightly disagree with that, Jeff, in that we, as we are present, we feel that if there are differences in, let's say, you know, the number of people who are admitted under certain tests to elite universities, if that does not admit a proportion of a certain minority group that's similar to their proportion in the population, that uh, there's, you know, this must be uh, racist practices or, or biases in the admission. And so we go to significant lengths to try to overcome that. Now, you know, that it may be relevant, you know, it, it may be that there are other causes that lead to different results and that they're not the results of systemic racism, which is the, the, the assumption that we currently make. Now, you know, what actions follow from that, of course, is a different question, as you say, and it may be that uh, even if we were to find that there are, on average, genetic differences in, in demographic groups, it may be that, that the result of that is we should put more effort into trying to improve the environment of those demographic groups which do not have the same average scores as, as high as others. That's, that's what I was suggesting, by the way. Yeah. But I, what I'm saying is in terms of, you know, I, I'm not, I wouldn't say that it makes no difference at all because it, it does make a difference as to where we look for how we ought to respond to this. And, and rather than beating our chest and saying we're such a racist society that we are in some subtle way that is not, you know, or maybe not so subtle, of course. Some of this is absolutely the, ob the opposite of being subtle, but, but that we are looking for ways in which we ourselves are guilty of having these racist biases. Mm -hmm. it, it may be that instead we ought to be saying, no, it's not, it's not that, but there are some other things in the, in the environment that we could help to to overcome this. Yeah, I, mean, I think I'm prepared to even go a step further there and say that in, in many of these cases, you know, specifically at an institution like your own, Princeton, you know, to the contrary, we, not only is there not overt racism keeping certain groups out and underrepresented, if in fact they, they still are underrepresented, uh, you know, I think there, there has been a pretty active campaign of affirmative action at most schools like your own, um, though there are some some exceptions, and just you know, to think of this more widely, right? There, I do think it is pathological for us to assume that unless every conceivable desirable position in society shows a perfectly proportionate representation of the population, the only explanation for that. 
mismatch is bigotry. We know enough at this point to know that's not true. If nothing else, there are many cases where there's just differential interest, you know, born of culture in some cases and in biology in others. I mean, just look at the difference between men and women in their representation in in scientific fields, right? There, there are fields in science that are now dominated by women. I mean, certainly more than 50% of psychologists and biologists at this point, I think it's fair to say, are women, uh, at least in, in, in graduate schools now. And there will be, you know, viewed with the, the lens of bigotry, uh, an unconscionably low number of women in engineering departments, right? And probably in physics departments still. And I, I'm not sure there, there are any honest people left who think that bigotry is what explains that. I mean, there, there's got to be some differential interest here. And, you know, perhaps in certain cases, aptitude, when you're talking about the, the extremes of, of mathematical ability, you know, there's probably, uh, you know, this is, the, this is the very claim that got Larry Summers you know, thrown out of Harvard when he speculated that may perhaps the different representation between men and women in engineering and physics and other, you know, almost purely quantitative fields is due to not different means in those distributions, but a different level of variance, right? So the the far, you know, once you get several standard deviations from the mean, you could have many more men who, with that mathematical ability, at both tails, right? You know, both the high end and the low end. Now that was that's a hypothesis. I think there's still some considerable evidence for it. I don't I don't think that the jury's in on that. But you know, if that just turns out to be true, the fact that we spent any time at all lacerating ourselves over, you know, now for many 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 years over residual bigotry and misogyny in these departments will seem like a, you know, a terrible misuse of energy. And again, this is not to say that misogyny hasn't been a problem and isn't still a problem in other cases. But so I, I take your point, Peter, that there's understanding this will allow us to correct for a misdiagnosis of the problem. But I do think th- there's this added piece of around the perversity of just investigating in areas where there's such an ick factor where one feels, you know, it's what good is going to come of that? You know, if that's my first question upon hearing, you know, that someone is writing a 5,000 word piece for you, you know, on X, and my first feeling about X is, wow, that just seems truly morbid. I, I'm just wondering if we can conceive of what that, how we would find that boundary in principle, or if uh, you're not really thinking about that. You're just, going to, you're just going to know it when you see it. Well, one thing to say about that is that uh, it's right that some people could investigate certain phenomena for the bad, wrongful, discreditable reasons. On the other hand, sometimes results just show up as side effects of inquiry or mm. the phenomena are just there and they call for some explanation. So a lot depends on how these questions arise and why they are pursued. Yeah, I mean, 
the, the results just showing up is the most important variable from my point of view because it's they will just show up and we currently have a social and intellectual order that is advertising its brittleness literally on a, a minute by minute basis and there's there's just no reason for it i mean if, if we could render indelible our political commitments to you know equality and compassion if we could articulate clearly enough what kind of society we want to live in where individuals are treated as such and everyone was given every opportunity they could possibly use to thrive right if that's our goal right and we're not you know covertly trying to to engineer some some noxious political order where you know some groups benefit to the disadvantage of others systematically i mean if we have a kind of Rawlsian understanding of what this project is, it seems to me we should be able to talk about anything, but we really do feel very far from that moment. But I mean, if we can agree on on that, and yes, some people are going to be offended and going to feel hurt by the fact that we're talking about somebody's working on uh, infanticide or IQ, but this is also how we make progress. Like 20 years ago, it was considered absolutely, at least in my country of origin, which is a Catholic country, Italy, you couldn't really tell, even among like left wing secular atheist people, that gay marriage was a good thing and that, you know, gay people should be allowed to adopt children, to have children. But then the conversation started. And yes, a lot of people were annoyed, offended, hurt by the fact that people had this non-Catholic, non-religious views. But 20 years later, we now have gay marriage and you know, gay people can adopt and we have made a lot of progress with these rights. And we can't tell before we start talking about these issues, whether the change for society is going to be for the better, for the worse, but people anywhere are going to talk about these issues. And I think it's better if academics jump in the conversation and talk about these issues openly, instead of letting that conversation to some hidden groups that don't really get any feedback and don't really discuss their ideas with the external world. So if we can have this conversation in, in the open, maybe we find out that, you know, there was a mistake in the data collection or there was a mistake in the argument or there was a mistake in this view we had. But this has to be discussed and some people will be offended for sure. And some people have been offended in the past, but. I think overall, for a lot of issues, that was a good thing because it allowed us to to make progress, like I mentioned in the case of uh, gay marriage and adoption. Well, I think you should probably lean into this and publish your journal or the best selections from your journal every year around Christmas as a coffee table book, lavishly illustrated, and uh, <laughs> just use it to your advantage. It could be a, a very interesting document. 
what museum is that? Is it, is it the Mutter Museum that uh, has collections of things that nobody, <laughs> everyone would be otherwise terrified to see? But I don't know about that. Yeah, uh, there's a, a museum that has you know human anomalies, uh, you know, cyclopses in formaldehyde and just ghastly things that. Uh, <laughs> I'll look it up. I forget where where this is. So, so what kinds of topics are you expecting slash hoping to publish on? Francesca, do you want to talk about the the, the papers that we've accepted in in broad terms? Um, yes, very very broadly because uh, it should be a surprise. Mm. We um had some papers on animal rights, some submission on transgender questions, some papers on with the group differences, and, um, well, we'll see what else is going to be accepted. So far, we accepted around six, seven papers, and we hope that for the first issue, we have around 10. So there are various topics, some more controversial than others, but all quite controversial. Mm. Well, and I'll just add, we, 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 to go back to the previous conversation, we do have one not on group differences in intelligence, but in more generally about the role that the genes play in intelligence and the denial of that uh, or the difficulty of talking about that in, in some circles. Mm. Yeah. I guess if we can maybe just close the loop on that topic, it's interesting to think just to try to take the, the thorn out of this rosebush, because for a person thinking about this particular problem, I guess I, I, my, my moral intuitions have been so worn down on this that I, I'm just not sure I can recapitulate the problem uh, here. So it's just, it's like, you know, I am, uh, I am half Ashkenazi Jew, right? So that's part of my group identity, I guess, and genetically, certainly. And in part culturally, and this is a group that has been much celebrated for its, for the you know the correlation of of its misadventures in the world with you know mathematical ability among other intellectual abilities, but it is patently obvious that knowing my Ashkenazi background tells you absolutely nothing about my mathematical ability, and in my case, though I was never bad at math, I'm certainly not good enough by nature so as to have gravitated toward it as a career. There is no question. I do not have the genes of an Alan Turing here. So what what am I going to do with that? And what is the basis for offense if, I mean, I, you know, a person has whatever they have in this space and they, and they can make use of whatever opportunities they're given to the degree that they're, they can find them. And it just seems to me obvious that we want a society where the opportunities and incentives are such that every individual can flourish to the greatest possible extent. And that will be different in different cases. And it's never a question of everyone being equal in all of their capacities. That's clearly a pipe dream and not even obviously a desirable one. But it is also a case that all boats can rise with whatever tide we can engineer to make life an opportunity better and better for more and more people. 
And that's the that's our ethical responsibility here. But the basis for offense or pride or anything that could correlate with any summary of group differences, I mean, all I see is a very easy path to daylight to get past all that. And um, obviously that is, you know, from one point of view, that is my privilege talking. But yeah, I have the privilege to recognize that there was no way I was going to be the next Alan Turing, right? Through no fault of my own. And, I, you know, and I, I live in a world where it would be great to have that native talent. You know, that's something that I would, you know, if I, if I could buy it, I certainly would buy it. But, you know, I'm playing different games as a result. So I, I don't know if you, if you have more to add to that, but it's just, it feels like there's an, there's a, an ethical and psychological inoculation we need to try to perform on more and more people to give them the ability to have the kinds of conversations you're proposing we need to have. I don't think it's quite as simple as that because I think the fear is of information reinforcing stereotypes. And even though, as you correctly say, the information about group differences is not going to enable us to determine the abilities of any particular individual, as with just what you said about your Ashkenazi Jewish background and your not super hot ability in maths, but people will use stereotypes. Um, I'm reminded of an article by James Flynn, who um, was the discoverer of the Flynn effect in IQ, the fact that um, IQ has risen if we use the same tests and didn't standardize them to get the average IQ as 100. If we use the same test that we used 100 years ago, then you know everybody's IQ has gone up 20 or 30 points. And he used that to argue that it's very probable, certainly possible, that demographic differences in IQ are due to environmental differences because all it would take is that the currently observed differences between, let's say, African-Americans and, and whites would be due to differences in environment that are similar to the differences between the environment of everybody today and the environment of everybody in, let's say, the 1940s. I'm, I'm not sure if that's exactly the right year for the difference, but, mm. but something like that. And that doesn't seem at all implausible. So, so Flynn was you know, one of the strong advocates for saying these genetic hypotheses are very possibly, probably wrong because the environmental differences could explain it. At the same time, he points out that people don't always have the ability to really assess individual differences. And so stereotypes play a role. And the example he gives is, suppose that you're a woman who wants to rent uh, a room out in your house to a, to a lodger. You need to get some more money. And you have two applicants who uh, apply and are interested. One of them is a Korean-American uh, female, and the other is an African-American male. Now, you know, it may well be that the Korean-American female is a, a violent criminal um, and is going to attack you and rob you and do all sorts of things, and that the African-American male is the most you know, gentle, kind, helpful uh, housemate that you could possibly imagine. But you're, you're trying to rent out a room. You, you can't actually employ a private detective in order to find out all of the information about your possible applicants. So you're going to go along with your stereotype. You're going to offer the room to the Korean-American female. And you know, that's, that's the concern, that people don't get opportunities mm. because of you know, their individual characteristics 
they do get stereotyped. And from the point of view of uh, actors in, in the market, in this case, the person who wants to rent out a room in our home, that's a rational thing to do. They, they, it's not rational for them to put the resources into really finding out everything about the individual that they would need to know to make a fully informed decision. Yeah, well, I certainly take that point that this speaks to the magnitude of any group differences we would find. So provided group differences on any given topic were sufficiently large, well, then you have a statistical argument to dignify the stereotype as being, you know, valid information, given a the scarce resource of time, you know, as as you say, people will just throw out certain applications based on surface features of applicants. And I, yeah, I, I completely grant that's a concern, but yeah, I mean, in in many cases, we're not we're talking about effects that are small enough that it's really you really don't have good information, and. There are market dynamics to that. I mean, someone who is systematically ignoring whole groups, despite the fact that the there there are you know fantastic candidates for whatever the position is in those groups, that just leaves the the market open for someone else to come forward and mine that particular group for their qualified people. But um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a problem of of incomplete information. And I mean, do you have any any insights as to how we should be talking about this area so as to move forward? I think that the conversation on this topic is so difficult that we don't really have even good, reliable data on this topic, probably. Uh, my understanding is that since people don't really want to do this kind of research. Most of the data we have is old, and and this I think can be a problem in itself because maybe mm. if we had better data, we realize that this difference is not there, or is less, or is reversed. So, yeah, that, I think that, that that's a depressing circumstance because it's this whole area, and now I mean, we're not we're not talking about just. IQ differences between groups. We're talking about all kinds of differences between groups. It is in such ill repute for obvious reasons that we we can't even find our way to the the happy outcomes that may in fact be there. Right. So it's what are you going to do with something that that everyone is? It isn't. It is the elephant in so many rooms, and we can't even study it. And 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 how could you possibly recommend that a grad student? focus on any one of these areas in the hopes of having a career in, in the ivory tower at this point? I think the, the real question is here, I mean, I think I don't have any expertise in this topic. I doubt if Peter and Francesca have much either. The question for us is whether these are issues that should be discussed, whether some scientific research should go on about these things. And what seems to me to be the wrong thing to do is to say that somehow or other, we know on moral and political grounds the answers to questions that are essentially empirical and scientific. If we go forward on the basis of ignorance or on the basis of studies that are, can no longer be questioned, 
without the ability to do new studies, will we really be preparing ourselves to deal in the in the most humane, best ways with the problems that arise from any differences there may well be? Again, our 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 view is that it's better to discuss these issues than to suppress discussion of them. Yeah, I agree. And I, I just want to add one other point to that, and that is that if, in fact, we do suppress discussion of these issues, which a lot of people who are not academics are, in, in a broad sense, aware of these issues, and if we, if we can't discuss those in universities and in other forums, then I think we produce this backlash in uh, that other part of the community that essentially is saying, you know, they're, they're favoring these particular groups that they're concerned with that's not us. And, and I think the, uh, you know, you, you can see that among the, the supporters who elected Trump in 2016 and uh, the 70 million who continued to vote for him despite everything in, in 2020, that uh, a lot of them feel resentment that uh, somehow you know, the, it's, it's the liberal left they see as clamping down on their freedom of speech and freedom of, of discussion. And I think we want to try to avoid producing that reaction and, and showing that, in fact, we genuinely do believe in freedom of thought and, and freedom of discussion. And, mm. and that's the impetus behind founding the, the Journal of Controversial Ideas, really, to provide that kind of forum where people can express these things. I did just want to say one thing in support of what Peter said a moment ago, and that is that I know from experience, because I, I'm from the American South, I'm still in touch with people I grew up with in South Carolina who are Trump supporters and populists. They are forever sending me over email links to articles in Breitbart and whatever it is, uh, um, the, the Alex Jones uh, mm. Info website, InfoWars Info Wars, yeah. and that kind of thing. And there is a cottage industry of people on the right combing through academic journals and looking at what happens on campuses to find material that they can ridicule, to find evidence of suppression of ideas in academia that delights them and it confirms their view that all academics are frauds and spongers on society and that uh, scientific knowledge is not something that should be respected because it's just a, a scam and a way to get money and that kind of thing every time they see these efforts to suppress the science and so on it gives them great delight. It confirms their worldview. It confirms the view that there really aren't any experts and, mm. and so on. So I, I did want to emphasize that. Right. And, and let me add, it, it's, it's a real threat to universities in states controlled by Republican legislatures. Um, I have mm -hmm. a colleague at the University of Kansas who says the, the university is really under attack at the moment. You know, an excellent university from a Republican-controlled state Congress. So um, that's a worry, too. Yeah, every time there's a, a Republican governor and a Republican legislature in a state in the United States, the public universities suffer from withdrawal of funding. Hmm. This may be a problem of degrees, though, because I, I do think that 
there is now good reason for concern that whole departments within our universities have been producing something like a corpus of pseudo knowledge, right? And this is this is not in physics and biology and engineering and or even in you know most departments of philosophy or you know comparative literature or but you know when you get into the zone of gender studies and critical race theory and the exports from those departments have become deranged to the point where you know now fairly hilarious and famous hoaxes can be easily perpetrated where you can there's no paper too crazy along those lines that some journal won't publish it and that's that's actually the kind of thing I mean, I'm I'm not pointing my finger at any particular discipline here, but that's the kind of thing that these right-wing websites that monitor academia feed on. They look sedulously yeah. for instances of crazy stuff in academic papers. They then circulate it throughout these large communities via social media or on these websites. Yeah, but some of these are own goals on the part of our institutions, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's like, I mean, it just look at what just happened at Princeton, Peter. I don't know if you, how close you were to this eruption of masochism over there, but the letter that was recently signed by something like 150 professors declaring Princeton a thoroughly racist institution, to which the Trump Department of Education said, Oh, that's interesting. Are you really racist over there? Well, maybe we need to investigate you for violating the 1964 Civil Rights Act because you've been taking federal money. I don't know where that's gone, but obviously from the point of view of of the wider culture and, and, and certainly from the point of view of your friends in the South, Jeff, what happened there was, you know, Princeton went a bridge too far in their woke virtue signaling in a th- you know thoroughly dishonest act of self-castigation they claimed to be even more racist than the next Ivy League school that was thoroughly racist and then they were taken at their word quite comically right because it, it's just not credible to say that I mean, Princeton is a institution that has many celebrated black academics it you know as far as i understand at the time that this letter was written the the dean of admissions was black, and it may still be the same person. You know, it is not the poster child for white supremacy, and <laughs> and yet it was claiming to be. And you know, then the other shoe dropped, and so that that is what is, you know, frankly risible about the ivory tower. Now, we're, we're living through a kind of public hysteria and moral panic around these specific issues. And the university has been the epicenter of it, not a corrective to it. Yeah. I think that's true of, of some elements in the university, not of the whole, right? And there's a lot more faculty at Princeton than 150. Of, mm. But, uh, but it, it's true that there is an element of that. Uh, no, no, I was just saying that, yes, it is true that this is happening in universities and that a lot of things in academia, a lot of strange things happening in academia. But I think that. The reason or possible explanation for that is that activism has infiltrated academia. So I'm not sure if it's academia itself, like academic research, 
that is a problem over the fact that there has been this merging of academia with activism. And like when you do academic research, you should question everything and try to find a good answer. So, but for activism, the goal is different. So ac activists want to bring home some results. And, you know, when, when you have some activists that say, yeah, no, everything is, is racism and racism is systematic, even at Princeton, for instance, I think that we don't really have a problem with academia itself, but probably we have a problem with this strange new mingling of academia and activism that probably should be mm, taken more into examination. I don't think, think it's really, that. excuse me if I, if I enter in here, hmm. I don't think it's that activism among academics and in academia is a problem. In fact, I think it's a good thing. I consider Peter Singer, for example, an activist in all kinds of areas. And that's hmm. one of the things I most admire about Peter is that he's not just an ivory tower philosopher. The problem is not activism, but the way in which some activists operate, which is by trying to stigmatize and suppress the people that they disagree with rather than reasoning and arguing with them. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I entirely agree with that. I think uh, clearly I, I have combined academic work with activism in both respect of treatment of animals and global poverty and also some life and death issues, advocate for assistance in dying, for example. But I do try to keep, I guess, the activism separate to some extent. That is, when I teach these issues, I make sure that students get readings on both sides, readings that are intellectually respectable on both sides. And I would never, you know, castigate or try to exclude people that I, who I disagree with. So I think that that's part of the difference that, that we do have in some areas much more of a kind of group mentality of the idea that says you've got you've got to hold these views it's it's you're not going to be part of our group you're not going to be advanced perhaps in your career or in your positions if if you question some of the basic things that we believe so that that to me is the problem and that's really in a way what lies behind founding the the journal of controversial ideas that we want to create opportunities for people to say no I'm not going to go along with that kind of groupthink. Yeah. And we, yeah, exactly. we, we are in our own way activists in behalf of freedom of thought and discussion. And we think, I think of this as part of our responsibility as academics. I mean, I remember my great hero when I was coming along was Noam Chomsky. And I remember reading a, a really wonderful essay many, many decades ago by Noam called The Responsibility of Intellectuals. And I do think that as intellectuals and academics, we have responsibilities to the wider society. This was back in the days of the Vietnam War when Noam was writing this kind of thing. And so I, do, I really do think that it's, it's, it's good for us to, to apply our critical thinking, our knowledge, and so on to issues that really matter in politics and in society, but to do so in ways that are intellectually responsible which means addressing the issues, considering all the different points of view, and 
trying to give the best art, you know, find the best arguments and the evidence so that we can reach reasonable, defensible conclusions. Yeah, I, yeah, just like I wanted to add that, yes, when I meant that there is a problem with activism infiltrating academia, I didn't mean that there is a problem if some academics also do some activism. I do some of that myself, of course. The problem is that if you get to certain conclusions because you think critically about it and given that, you know, and you become an activist because you've reached that conclusion by thinking freely about it, that's perfectly fine. But if you start as an activist and you never really question and you take it as a dogma and then mm -hmm. you go on to academia, that is problematic because, especially because we have a duty to teach students to, to think critically and to look at different points of views about every topic. And I think we should keep doing that ourselves. I speak for myself, but I think that's also true of Jeff and Peter, that I keep questioning my views, even the one that I hold very dearly from time to time, because, you know, sometimes I have to think about counter-arguments. Sometimes I'm exposed to some counter-argument that makes me think, oh, maybe I was wrong about it. Maybe I should think better about these aspects of my views. But activists don't really do that. And that's, I think, the, the big difference between coming from activism or coming from philosophy and then to activism. Mm. Well, maybe the, the framing of this is wrong because it seems to me that insofar as you are sure that certain consequential facts are the case, you know, and, and the stakes are really high, well then, you know, your activism drops out naturally from that conviction, right? So it's just, we're talking about gradations of, of certainty. You know, if you're a, an epidemiologist and you are sure that our models of the current pandemic are completely wrong and many people will die as a result, well, then you're going to get up every morning feeling very much like an activist in trying to convince people of, of the basic science here. So maybe, maybe the, the, the bright line really is between dogmatism and a spirit of open inquiry. You know, I mean, yeah. as long yeah. as you're open to good arguments and good evidence, then you really are doing the intellectual work of yeah, whatever I discipline think that's, it is. I just give you a, a brief bit of autobiography here, and that is that when, when I was an undergraduate and the Vietnam War was in progress, as I said, one of my great heroes was Noam Chomsky, another was Bertrand Russell. And I was led away from my academic major, which was English literature, into philosophy because, really, I, I was by nature more an activist than a thinker. But I wanted to make sure that if I were going to be actively advocating certain ideas in politics and in morality, I wanted to make sure that, that I was getting it right. I didn't want to be an activist on behalf of ideas that were mistaken. And a lot of people are. There are a lot of people who, I mean, history shows this over and over again. A lot of people are, are idealistic and highly motivated by ideals when their ideals are simply mistaken. And, you know, that's what I at least wanted to try to avoid. That's why I went into philosophy. I wanted to examine the arguments as carefully as I could to make sure that if I were going to try to change the world in certain ways, I would be changing it for the better and not inadvertently changing it for the worse. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, so as we um, enter a kind of closing chapter here, I wonder if we can bend the conversation toward this question of actually doing good in the world. And this this relates to the topic of population ethics that you raised earlier, Jeff. There are some, certainly some paradoxes uh, that await us in really trying to understand how we, how the well-being of humanity can be thought about in the aggregate and uh, how we can balance various trade-offs between the good of one group versus the good of another, just how, how goods add up, you know, how we balance the death of one person against the, the broken arms of thousands. It's just, it, this is hard, hard math to do, but, um, but maybe I could just frame this by um, referencing a conversation that none of you have heard, but I've been recently talking to Will McCaskill a lot about uh, effective altruism, and, and this is a movement which, Peter, as you know, you've done a lot to inspire. But we were talking about what we perceive to be the limitations of some of the most inspirational work you've done, like in the, in the thought experiment of, of the shallow pond, to remind everyone what that is. You see a child drowning in a shallow pond, and uh, though you could easily save that little boy or girl, you decline to because you have a nice new pair of shoes that you don't want to get wet, because if you got them wet, they would be ruined, and that would be some hundreds of dollars that um, you don't feel like parting with. Well, everyone, upon hearing that anecdote, knows at once that you are a moral monster who cannot be collaborated with on really any project for the rest of your life. But described differently, you are the sort of person who receives yet another appeal from a very good charitable organization that is saving the lives of drowning kids the world over. But because you're busy and you you know you already gave a lot to your daughter's school, you don't feel like cut and check at that moment, so you just throw the envelope in the trash. And when you do the actual, you know, consequentialist math here, it seems like precisely the same circumstance. You have declined to save a life when you really easily could have at the cost of just a few hundred dollars. And yet the person who's just chucked the the envelope from UNICEF or some other organization in the trash is not exposed as the the demon who will be shunned by polite society for the rest of his life, because we've all been that person, and we and most of us will be that person tomorrow, and most of us live perpetually in that state by declining to do all the good we could do every day of our lives. So many people are provoked by this analogy, and this has, again, inspired many examined lives and much good work in the world, and effective altruism is one of the outcomes of this way of thinking, but Will and I were also discussing what strikes us as as the limitations of that starting point, because what people come away feeling is that there's really the, the mountain of goodness is impossibly steep, and there's no way to get to the summit, really, unless you're going to be the person who's donating every last donatable organ to strangers and living identically to the poor and, you know, giving away every, you know, and far be it from being the person who can justify, you know, spending money on, you know, your child's birthday present, because that's a mere luxury when yet another child is drowning in a shallow pond somewhere. 
so it it produces a kind of you know masochistic self-judgmental life negative uh, machinery which is very different from a different kind of framing here i mean this uh, none of that is an argument against the analogy i'm just saying i'm talking about the psychological effects of absorbing the analogy but if you a framing that that will is fond of and maybe this is something you've actually used elsewhere in your work peter i don't know but rather than think about doing every last bit of good you could possibly do and if you decline to do that you are a you know you are identical to the man with nice shoes who is evil think of it as a, in terms of it being an opportunity whereas like if if you could if you knew today you got a chance to run into a burning building and save a child's life you know if you actually did that today and then you did something like that tomorrow you would suddenly be, feel like you're living a life where you know you, you're just an absolute hero and these are the kinds of moments you would these would be the peak experiences of your life that you'd be reflecting on at your deathbed but you know but will would point out that you do have that opportunity you, you may not be able to make it as emotionally salient as all that but you really can send the hundred dollars or the thousand dollars to the organization that will save that child or a child just like that child and you can participate in that machinery of goodness and it's not framed in terms of these zero sum contests with the other things you want to do in life that yes do cost money that you're not giving to that organization but you can be thrilled to keep saving more and more people and make that part of your budget you know an increasing part of your budget and kind of try to get the the flywheel of commitment to doing good running based on the kind of that those hedonic principles rather than the the self-castigating uh, moral failure of you're not doing enough even if you've done you know more than 99% of humanity you're still going to walk by another child in that pond today when you buy yourself the lunch that was twice as expensive as it needed to be right so i just wanted to get your reaction to that peter and then i'd love jeff and francesca to share any wisdom they have on on the front of of how we can do the most good in the world yeah i, I quite agree that the psychology is important here and i'm familiar with the parallel with rescuing someone from a burning building and i think that is a a good way to think about this personally i've i've never been the kind of person who uh, you know castigates myself for not being good enough and uh, the one thing that i i guess would disagree with in the way you presented the idea of the drowning pond is the sense that unless you get to the summit you failed and i i rather think of this as moving higher up the slope is a good thing because if you move higher up the slope that is if you start giving where you haven't given before or you increase your giving beyond what you've given before you've saved lives if you've done this to the most effective charities you've saved lives you've improved lives you've you know enabled people who are blind to see again whatever it might be these are very good things that you've done and sure the the more of that you do the better but i don't think you have to think about yourself as as a failure because you haven't done everything possible and reduced yourself to the level of people in extreme poverty and and certainly i, I haven't done that and i've never claimed mm. that i've done that or am even on the path to doing that so in that sense i i do agree with the importance of looking at it as an opportunity and as i know many people in the effective altruism movement feel that actually it enriches their own life 
Charlie Bressler, who was the founding executive director of, of The Life You Can Save, a charity that spun off the book I wrote of the same name, actually said, the life that I saved is my own because he was somebody who'd made quite a lot of money in a successful career in the retail industry, but had never felt he was living in accordance with his real basic underlying values. And, and when he decided he'd made enough money and he was going to do something better and then came across my book, The Life You Can Save, and volunteered as you know, completely unpaid, in fact, uh, I say on negative pay executive director because he was a donor mm. to the organization. When he did that, then his life you know, turned around and he felt a lot more fulfillment in what he was doing. And you know, a lot of people I know feel that. So I, I do think it's important to emphasize the positive in terms of the psychology of what we're doing rather than to dwell on the fact that we're not saints. Interesting. Well, I will, I will bat this piece of audio back to uh, Will so that we can properly integrate it in our future discussion of these topics. That's helpful. Jeff and Francesca, do you have any thoughts about this topic? Peter and Jeff are the experts on this topic, yeah. but it's, it's just okay about... if you don't. Sorry? It's okay if you don't. We can, we can move and on. And I would just want to say that about a psychological issue is, I think that's the whole mark of existence to feel that people are not good enough. And that's not just about you know, giving money to charity. It's like, how are we, do we work enough? Are we kind enough? Uh, are we good enough people and the fact that the effective altruism has brought the attention to this topic has not made our existence overall worse because I think that we think a lot about our shortcomings in our areas of our existence but in this particular case I think that being aware of the choices we can make to help other people is really important even if there is a slight increase maybe in the sense of guilt that some people experience if they don't give as much as they would like or as much as other people. But just this side comment. Okay. I I would say this is this is not my area, but I do think it would be odd if somebody decided to devote themselves to helping other people for their own sake. In other words, if they set out to make themselves happier by doing more good, very unlikely to work. If we do it from self-interest, it's not going to work. You have to really care about the other people and whatever benefits one gets oneself, whatever increase in well-being one gets from engaging in altruistic activity almost necessarily has to be a side effect. It can't be the intended goal of trying to help other people. And I also think that the, the satisfaction that one gets from donating money to charities, even a lot of money, would never be the kind of satisfaction that one would get from pulling a child out of a pond, seeing the relief on the parents' faces, the gratitude of the child, and so on and so forth. You know, so, you know, the psychology is quite different when you write a check and when you actually go out into the world and help people in a face-to-face -face sort of way. Well, those are in interesting points. I, th I think this is, it's the gulf between the two or the apparent gulf between the two that is what convinces many people that, that Peter's thought experiment isn't valid insofar as 
we close that gulf and it, and we make it more and more valid then then it begins to pose the the motivational problem i started with and and i mean it seems to me that we we want to close the gulf in a variety of ways because I mean, we we want we want the suffering the distant suffering of people we will never meet to be more salient the more we actually can do something about it right in, in a world where you can do nothing about it well then maybe there's an argument for you know ignorance being bliss there but in a world where our own economic activity at least affects people all over the globe and we are implicated in their suffering in in the way we marshal our resources it seems to me we want to make it more salient and then when we jump into some virtuous side of the machine and do more and more good simply by cutting a check or using our resources or, or, or time and attention in, in various ways, we want to make it more and more analogous to the very good feels you would get actually being, you know, a face-to-face -face hero. And so anything that would allow us to do that, I think, would be good. And, we, and I think we want it to be as rewarding as it can be and as it would be if we did it up close and personal. One of the ways that charities used to do that was to assign to a donor yeah. a particular beneficiary and maybe even get the beneficiary to send the donor a letter of thanks or something like that. And the charity would send a picture of the beneficiary to the donor and that kind of thing. And Yeah, yeah which, which always was less effective, in fact, than helping the whole village, right? Because in terms of yeah. producing real changes, it's much better to do it to help the village rather than to single out particular children and say this child has been sponsored by some person yeah. in another country. Yeah. Well, that, that's the that's the problem that there's there's a disjunction between what makes us feel good and the 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 highest good we can do. I mean, this is you know, based on Paul Slovic's work, and I mean, people actually just care less when you add protagonists to the story, right? You 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 single out one little girl; they care. Maximally, you you tell them there's a girl, this same little girl and her brother are in need. They care a little bit less, and then you say there there are four hundred thousand kids just like them, on the verge of famine. They care so little that they just change the channel. So it's it's this is clearly a a moral flaw in us, you know, certainly viewed consequentially. And I think we 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 do want the feeling component. To be divorceable here because it just may, in fact, be the case that certain things will tug at our heartstrings for whatever reason, and those things are just clearly not as good as the other things that a a more rational and clinical evaluation would nominate as the best causes we could support, and we just have to be able to triangulate on, on ourselves rationally and deploy resources toward the thing that is less sexy, you know, even ethically. I find this is sort of what effective altruism has, has done to me. I've committed to give, you know, you know, I've taken the pledge that, you know, that Will and others have well advertised to give a minimum of 10% of my, my income to, um, to the most effective charities. But then I find that there are other things that I wish I could support but I can't actually argue that those things should be among, you know, the EA-approved most effective charities. So I support those things, and I mean, these can be things even like pediatric cancer research at 
you know, St. Jude's Children's Hospital. I support those things that really do tug at my heartstrings as a kind of guilty pleasure, right? <laughs> you know, and right. and but but it's it's wonderful to actually be in that mode to to, to be greedy for the opportunity to kind of break my effective altruism purism over here with this with this other budget you know that that is allocated to that i'm not convinced jeff that we can't make our own search for psychological well-being and even selfishly construed i mean just a kind of a, a eudaimonic notion of you know our own flourishing i'm not i'm not convinced we can't make that converge with a consequentialist understanding of the good that is there to be done in the world. And it just seems to me that a truly wise construal of selfishness makes them converge more and more. Uh, and where they, don't, where they don't truly converge as a matter of, you know, kind of pure pleasure, we can, again, price that in and correct for that, you know, in our more rational moments and, and find that whole kind of meta-level effort a source of well-being. Yeah, I don't. I I don't really disagree with that. And and, and let me just get back to the journal of controversial ideas because oh, yeah. you mentioned donating to um, pediatric research is not quite the most effective charity. And you know w- we do need some financial support for the journal of controversial ideas mm-hmm. because it's an open access journal. Everybody's going to be able to read the articles for free online. So obviously there are some publication costs, and I've I've put in a bit of money to that to get it going. I hope that some of your listeners will put in a bit of money, go to journalofcontroversialideas.org and and donate to us. That would be great. But I have to admit that you know, as compared to saving the life of a child who would otherwise die from malaria by providing bed nets or restoring sight in somebody who is blind um, and where their sight can easily be restored by a very inexpensive cataract. Uh, operation. It's not quite on that level. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I do think the journal will do a lot of good. I, it's hard to say how much good. I think it's important to have freedom of thought and discussion. But yeah, it, it, for me, the journal is not you know, in the same league as the effective charities that are recommended by The Life You Can Save. But you've put, it, but you've put in a plug for it anyway. So this, <laughs> is, uh, That's this, right. this can be some, some of uh, Sam's listeners' uh, guilty pleasure. Well, yes, it, exactly. I hope it is. It, it is, it is me, it, I suppose. It is just, a, in fact, dis- descriptively true of my audience or any other that, that most people are spending a lot of their time seeking out all kinds of comparatively frivolous pleasures, you know, walking past shallow ponds with their drowning children and trying to figure out which yogurt they, they most want to eat and, uh, you know, whether medical marijuana needs to be a part of their daily diet or merely on the weekends. So, um, yeah, this is to uh, uh, suggest that, yeah, people should feel completely free, guilt-free in supporting something as um, comparatively frivolous as uh, a new academic journal that could transform our discussion of consequential topics and, and make it safe to do so. Because that, that really is the, the imperative now, is to figure out how to get out from under the shadow of what, what really has, has proven to be a a kind of mass psychological experiment that has been performed on us you know, largely by social media, where more or less everyone now knows that they risk reputational destruction if they 
touch any number of a host of topics of the sort that we've touched here. And it's, um, it's now actually excruciating out there, right? It's not, it's, it has been building for years, but we're now at a point where the dysfunction is raining down on us with, with more or less every tweet. So I, I commend you guys and uh, gal for doing what you're doing and, um, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah. And I actually, I was rather pleased that, um, on this particular broadcast, Peter Singer has emerged as an advocate of ineffective altruism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we've we've achieved real controversy here. Uh, good good luck with that, Peter. Effect, let's call it slightly less effective altruism rather than ineffective altruism. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, we're gonna we're gonna turn the vegans loose on you next, Peter. So get ready. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> Thank you all for doing this. Thanks very much for Thanks having very us. Much really for the opportunity, Sam. Thank you.